Like Adam said, my name is Gene. I am one of the young leaders here at Grace Fellowship Church, and I'm excited to be here this morning preaching from the Word of God. Uh, a, a few logistics. If you don't have a Bible, a pen, or an outline, just raise your hand, and Becca would be happy to get you that. Uh, also, we're happy to have children here. Uh, that's great. But if you want to make use of the nursery, that's on the other side of this mall. Just go to the back and make a couple lefts, and they would be happy to watch your kids there. Today we are going to be finishing up the book of First John. I recently just got back into Star Wars. <laughs> the Krolls were kind enough to let me borrow their entire saga, and I watched it for the first time since my childhood. If you've seen the first three episodes, the prequels, you've seen one of the main characters, Anakin Skywalker, grow and change and make decisions that eventually lead him to the dark side. He turns from good to evil and becomes Darth Vader. One thing that, I, that caught my attention as I watched the saga this time around is how sure of himself Anakin is in the prequels. He seems to always be saying, I will do this thing or that. I promise you. <laughs> he promises that things will be different or that he won't fail again. He even promises that his wife won't die in childbirth. Whatever it is, he's, he acts like he's certain that he knows his promises will come true. And friends, though I don't suggest imitating Anakin and going to the dark side, as Christians, there are a few things that we know. There are a few promises that we know will come true because they're promised to us in God's Word. One of the promises that we're going to look at today is we know that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> to give you a roadmap for where we're headed, we are going to be first considering what we know about this promise, followed by evidence that we know. We're going to talk about the three tests that we've been seeing all throughout 1 John. And then finally, how knowing this promise should change us. Okay, I'm going to read the passage now. Like I said, we're in 1 John 5, starting at verse 13. If you're using a church Bible, it's on 662. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. 
We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. If you were listening carefully, you might have picked up a repeated word. That repeated word is no. Under point one, let's consider what we know. One of the key tools in discovering the main point of a passage in the Bible is looking at repeated words. No comes up seven times in only nine verses here. This passage is very much about knowing. Let me go through them again quickly. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's our big one. That's our main point. Number two, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Clearly, there's a whole lot of knowing going on here. John's insistent on this idea. We know this. We know that. This might make you think, why is he so confident? What's all this knowledge rooted in? How can John's audience and how can we be assured enough to know these things? I believe the answer to why John's so confident is found in the first and the last no. Let's take a look. I'll read the first one again. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And here's the last one. Move your eyes to the middle of verse 20. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. These two no's have something in common. They both talk about Jesus and they both talk about eternal life. Verse 13, to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 20, we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John has bookended this idea of knowing in this passage with Jesus, eternal life, and Jesus, eternal life. Why is John so confident? Why does this matter? It's John is so confident because his confidence is rooted in Jesus. 
the assurance that we have in the Christian life is solid because of Christ. I was out to dinner with my aunt and uncle a couple years ago at this point. And uh, this was shortly after I became a Christian. And I've, I've always been close with this aunt and uncle. And so I was witnessing to them pretty, pretty steadily because I care about them a lot. And somehow we got on the topic of heaven and what somebody needs to get into heaven. And I'll never forget what my aunt said. She leaned over the table and said in a whisper, I don't think anybody really knows. Of course, I had to jump right on that and say, (laughs) Aunt Monica, I know I'm going to heaven because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's told me in God's word. And it's the same for you. If you have placed your faith in Christ and His sure blood of the cross, you have eternal life. It's right there in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Embrace what the Bible says here and know it. So in summary, we've talked about what we know. We've gone through the seven no's of the passage, seeing that their book ended with Jesus and eternal life. We've also talked about the key no, verse 13. Now let's talk about evidence that we know. In particular, evidence stemming from the three tests we've been seeing throughout 1 John. As a reminder, the three tests are the obedience test, the love test, and the confession test. John's a cyclical writer. We've been seeing these things time and time again as we've gone through this book. And the purpose of these tests is to help you observe fruit or evidence in your own or someone else's life that shows fruit of a true Christian, somebody who has eternal life. So with these tests, I can look at my own life and say, do I obey the commandments of God? Do I love others? Do I confess Jesus as the Christ? If the answer to those is yes, I can, sum, I can humbly say, I'm displaying the fruits of a true Christian. Under this section, we are going to talk about three of our seven no's and pull out where we see the tests in them. The first one is in verse 18. It's, it's the no in verse 18. John writes, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. This is the obedience test, right? If you are born of God, you do not keep on sinning. If you are born of God, you obey his commands. This one stings when you read it, doesn't it? Does this mean if I commit one more sin that I'm not a Christian? 
I think we have to read this verse right alongside other challenging verses in this same book. Like 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 2.1, my little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we take a holistic view of John's letter, we see on the one hand obedience and the conforming to Christ's image of the true believer. But we also see the reality of sin within each of us, even the true believer. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Let's consider an example. How about lust? Men and women both, I want you to consider this. If later this afternoon you go home and you see somebody walking down the street and you lust after their flesh, this might not necessarily mean you're not a Christian. That sin is still that sin still separates you from God. That sin still brings upon you eternal wrath without the, sh- the saving blood of Jesus Christ. But the fact that you, you sinned one more time does not necessarily nullify your Christian faith. However, let me give you the, the more serious case. If lust saturates your life, if you don't plan to stop, if you don't want to stop lusting, if there isn't genuine repentance or mourning of the sin in your life. If you look back a year ago and you're in the same place now that you were then, you might not be a Christian. The person John is talking about in this verse is the one who does not change, the one who keeps on sinning. Maybe it's not lust. Men and women, let's... Let's broaden it out a little bit. Maybe your struggle is lying or loving money. Maybe your struggle is hating someone in your heart or coveting what other people have. Whatever it is, if this sin pervades your life such that you keep on doing it, even though the Bible clearly tells you not to, you might want to stop and ask yourself, if you really know Jesus, if you really understand the gospel. I just did a whole lot of beating down. Let me do some building up. If you struggle with one of these sins or or another, and there exists in you a fight against sin, that's a really good thing. That's a sign that God is at work in you by His Spirit, transforming you into the image of Christ. The fact that there's a fight in you is a promising thing. So in summary of that test, we've seen that we know those born of God do not keep on sinning. 
And consistent with the whole letter, we've seen that there's a difference between a Christian who fights sin and a Christian who, uh, and somebody who may claim to be a Christian who keeps on sinning. All right, that was the obedience test. Let's move to the second test. It's found in the no of verse 19. Read it with me. John writes, We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. How do you know you are from God, according to John? You love others. This is the love test, right? Allow me to show you. In this same letter, John tells us, 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is the second test signaling the marks of a true Christian. One way you can um, tell somebody is displaying the fruits of a true Christian is to ask, do they obey the second greatest commandment? Do they love others? Let's put some flesh on this. One way you can tell if somebody loves you is if they actually listen to you when you talk. For those of you who know her, I think Becky Miller is really good at this. Whenever I talk with Becky, sharing how my day is, or or whatever I'm talking to her about, the way she listens and comments, Dan knows, (laughs) and asks questions makes me feel really loved. I can tell that she cares about me, that she loves me. Now, I can't speak for Becky, but my guess is she is seeking to live out the second greatest commandment. She's seeking to love others by listening well. You can love one another in other ways, too. Children, you can love others by sharing. Let someone else finish with that toy before you take it. Your sharing will serve to love them. Students, you can love others by spending quality time with them, especially other students. Invest in the members of Christ's kingdom by becoming a part of their lives. Your investment will serve to love them. Singles, you can love others by giving them your time. One example is that we commonly say here at Grace, is volunteer to babysit for somebody who has kids or a couple who has kids. Your sharing, your giving of your time will serve to love them. Parents, you can love others and your children by sharing words of encouragement. Tell them how you've seen God grow them over this past year. Your Words of encouragement will serve to love them. There are just a few quick examples. There are so many more ways to love people. I think you know that. 1 John 3.14, though, describes that there is a way not to love people. Whoever does not love abides in death. When you look at your life, can you say that you love people or not? Do you abide in life or do you abide in death? If you love others, you are displaying what John gives us 
as fruits of a true Christian. If you don't love others, if it's hard to love others and you don't want to do it at all, you might want to check yourself and see if you really understand the gospel, see if you really know Jesus. In summary of this test, we've seen that we know we are from God if we love one another. Loving is fruit that grows on a true Christian. Okay, the third test is the confession test. You know, by process of elimination, we did obedience, love, confession. Let's look at verse 20. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Here, John is confessing that the Son of God has come. Jesus, that guy who came, he was the Son of God. He's confessing Jesus as the Christ. Apply this test to yourself. Do you confess Jesus as the Christ? Do you confess Jesus as the one who was promised from God to save his people from their sins? I know that in my own life, when I meet somebody new uh, and I get an inkling that they might be a Christian, I usually don't find it very hard to talk about God or to admit spirituality or the fact that I believe there is a God. Where it gets tricky for me and uncomfortable for me is when you bring the J word into it. When it comes to confessing Jesus, that name. And this is a sin I need to continually repent of. It's hard for me to take that extra step and say that Jesus is the Son of God. I love Jesus. Without Jesus, no one is going to be in right standing with God. You can't just be about God and forget Christ. Christ is God. And like I said, that's something I need to fight against. By God's grace, I want to fight and confess Jesus as the Christ. And if you show this same confession, this repeated confession that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, to yourself and to others, you're displaying fruits of a true Christian. However, if you're just confessing that, if you're just mouthing the words because that's what you're supposed to do, if there is no fight in you to confess Jesus is the Christ, again, it might be time to stop and think, do I really understand the gospel? Do I really know Jesus? Okay, at the end of these three tests, I want to make something very clear. These tests, passing them over time, does not give you eternal life. It does not gain you eternal life with God. Passing these tests over time is merely evidence that you already have it. So in summary of section two, we talked about the three tests that we've been seeing, kind of as a, a closing to the book, if you will. We found three tests amongst three of the no's. Now let's consider how knowing should change us. Further application. If we know, verse 13, 
If we know that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ, how should that change us? How should our lives be different because we know this promise? Let me give you one application. The application is we should pray for the salvation of those with the promise. And for that, let's reread verses 14 through 17. Beginning at 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Notice two lines in this section. They both contain the word ask. Verse 14, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Connect that with verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask. Again, ask. And God will give him life. I think a clear application we can draw from this is to pray for the salvation of those who commit sins not leading to death. Now, what does that mean? What's the difference between the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death? Good question. I think in Scripture there are things that we are sure of, like verse 13. We know that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. This is foremost and primary. We know. Some things are a little bit trickier, like what the sin of leading to death really is, what the sin not leading to death is not or is. Allow me to humbly share with you what I think the text is telling us here. During the obedience test, we talked about lust, right? We talked about the guy who keeps lusting. He doesn't plan to stop. There's no mourning of that sin in his life, etc. We also talked about the other man, the one who struggles against his lust. He hates his lust. He wants to rid that sin of his life. There's mourning over the sin. There's there's progress. There's sanctification. With that in mind, which we got from other parts of John's letter, I think what John is saying here in verse 16 is the sin leading to death is the sin of the first man. Excuse me. The sin leading to death is the sin of the first man. Yes. The sin of the unrepentant man. The sin of the one who keeps on sinning. Whereas I think that the sin that does not lead to death is the sin... I'm getting confused. I'll just say it. The sin that does not lead to death is the sin of the repentant man. The sin of the the man who's making progress. The man who hates his sin.
Now let's consider one more thing that John tells us here. John gives us a promise for one of the men, but he doesn't give us a promise for the other man. Let's take a look. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. John promises, and so God in his word promises that if you pray for a brother committing a sin not leading to death, God will give him life. How encouraging is that? So the application here is to pray for the salvation of those who don't keep on sinning. And God will give him life. This may be a fellow believer in your life. Pray for their salvation. This may be an unbeliever in your life who has not yet been called to repentance, who has not yet been unrepentant. Pray for their salvation. The contrast I want to draw here is that there is a promise for praying for the one man and there is no promise for praying for the other. Continuing in verse 16, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Notice there's no promise of life here like with the first man. John leaves it open. He doesn't say to pray for the man and he doesn't say to not pray for the man. All he says is, I do not say that one should pray for that. This may be somebody in your life who has been called to repentance, but keeps on sinning anyway. In summary, the application of this text is we should pray for the salvation of those with the promise. Pray for the salvation of those who are repentant or who are not yet unrepentant. Because God will give them life, it tells us. You can pray for the salvation of the second man if you want to, but there's no guarantee. There's no promise there. Finally, let's consider the gospel. We know that we cannot save ourselves. We know that Christ alone has saved us through His death on the cross and His resurrection to life. Passing these three tests, again, does not gain you eternal life. It's merely evidence that you already have it in Christ. In other words, if you really understand the depths of your sin and you really grasp from the Scriptures the grace that we've been given, the the magnificent grace awarded to us in the death of a pure sacrifice in Jesus Christ, you'll want to pass the tests. You'll want to obey God's word. You'll want to love others. You'll be jumping out of your seat to confess Jesus as the Christ. We know that the only one who passed these tests perfectly was Jesus. But he was killed on a tree despite passing them perfectly. Trust in Jesus and in the surety of his shed blood And proclaim with John and with me, verse 13, I have eternal life. In closing, I'm going to bring it back to Star Wars. 
If you're a Christian, you can be as sure as Anakin is in Star Wars. But your certainty is rooted in something solid. Your certainty is rooted in this book, God's Word. It's not rooted in yourself like Anakin. You know you have eternal life in Jesus Christ because the Bible tells you so. And I would take the Word of God over Darth Vader's any day. (laughs) Let's pray.